9.9 billion dollars. That's how big the self-improvement market is, according to the organization Market Data. Now, I don't have to tell you, 9.9 billion dollars is a lot of money. All that money is being spent to convince you that you could be happier, less stressed, and more fulfilled if only you followed this method or that, read this book or another. Now, here's my question. If the self-improvement industry was so successful, why are so many people depressed, anxious, and overwhelmed? It is my theory that the self-improvement industry is selling the wrong thing. We don't need to be improved. We need to be accepted. One of the most dangerous things the self-help industry teaches you is you need to think positive, change your thoughts, and stop feeling so negative. You're listening to The Happier Approach, the show that pulls back the curtain on the need to succeed, hustle, and achieve at the price of our inner peace and relationships. And I'm your host, Nancy Jane Smith. Last week, we started pulling back the curtain on the toxicity that exists in the self-help industry. One of the most toxic ideas is positive thinking. Years ago, when I first started my private practice and would teach on living happier, I was a big proponent of Think Positive and the idea of change your thoughts, change your life. I would write about it, teach about it, and believed in the power of positivity. It was around the time of my dad's diagnosis with Parkinson's that the crack in the positive thinking mantra began. You might be thinking, what is positive about a Parkinson's diagnosis? But trust me, I found it. Such as, well, at least we found it early on, or we can research it and build our battle plan. No sadness, no anger, just push on, soldier on, buck up and think positive. It started showing up in other areas too. My relationships started to suffer because I couldn't handle anything negative. And it's hard to have relationships when you are a quote, high vibes only person. It left me feeling disconnected, disenfranchised, and frankly, bitter. I realized all this positive thinking left me feeling worse about my life, not better. Positive thinking felt great initially, but over time, it left me feeling empty and cut off from myself. But it wasn't until a few years ago that I finally began speaking up about the dangers of positive thinking and how, especially for those of us with high-functioning anxiety, it can be keeping us stuck. Because those of us with high-functioning anxiety have a habit of ignoring what's really going on. Because high-functioning anxiety is rooted in the belief that we are flawed and unworthy. As a coping mechanism for our anxiety, we wall off the, quote, unpleasant parts of ourselves. So we love the idea of positive thinking because it gives us permission to avoid the parts of ourselves that just aren't acceptable. As a result, positive thinking is something we tend to take a little too far. Positive thinking keeps us from being rooted in reality and accepting ourselves no matter where we are. So first, let's talk research. Well, let me be honest and say, the research in the positive psychology industry, and especially the self-help industry, is controversial at best. When Martin Slegman started the positive psychology movement, he talked about shifting the focus away from a disease model and pathology. Sounds good, right? Focus on the positive. The problem is his movement went from one extreme to another. Happiness became the new holy grail. When the positive psychology movement began in 1998, they devoted time and energy to research, which showed the positive effects of changing your thoughts and being more positive in general. 
What we now know and is not reported as much is that much of that research was not replicable and was peer-reviewed by people who shared the same beliefs. So a bit of groupthink was happening in the positive psychology world. The idea of, quote, be more positive is that you will achieve more goals, be more productive, and feel better if you're just positive. Much of the research that was done measured the immediate results of changing your thoughts from positive to negative. So let's say you get in a fight with your spouse over who is doing more. You leave the house in a huff and in the spirit of positive thinking, start naming all the things you are feeling positive about in the moment, saying to yourself, he's a loving father, and I'm just going to concentrate on his positive traits. You do feel better initially. I mean, who wouldn't? You're thinking warm, fuzzy thoughts, and they're true thoughts, but they are avoiding what is really going on. Much of the positive psychology research is studying this immediate initial response, which is usually positive you will feel happier in the moment. The issue is later, long-term, one week, four weeks, six months later, when you haven't dealt with the problem, when you're more frustrated than ever at your spouse's lack of help and or lack of appreciation, when you have stuffed down all those negative emotions in order to feel positive, will you be happier? I found the answer to be no, and so do many of my clients. I'm going to give an example of one of my clients, but for the podcast's sake, let's say her name is Mindy. Mindy grew up in an overwhelming household. She survived a toxic childhood, and thanks to her diligent attention, she saved not only herself, but her brothers too. As she sat in my office, she said, I survived, and I'm so proud of that. I don't really want to go there again. But the issue was every Father's Day, every year on her dad's birthday, every year on her birthday, not to mention all the other celebrations that involved happy-go-lucky fathers, she was reminded how terrible her childhood was. Her alcoholic father was not one of those happy-go-lucky people. But Mindy had survived by thinking positive, and she was in perpetual motion, and the words at least or but on the positive side were regular parts of her vocabulary. She came to see me because her anxiety was through the roof and she was constantly lashing out at her spouse and kids in frustration. In a study of more than 1,300 adults published in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology, researchers found that subjects who reported trying to avoid negative emotions in response to bad experiences were more likely to have symptoms of mood disorders such as anxiety and depression six months later, compared with those who embraced their negative emotions. Lead researcher Professor Brett Ford said, it turns out that how we approach our negative emotional reactions is really important for our overall well-being. People who accept these emotions without judging or trying to change them are able to cope with the stress more successfully. The study's co-author, Mouse, goes on to say, maybe if you have an accepting attitude towards negative emotions, you're not giving them as much attention. And perhaps if you're constantly judging your emotions, the negativity can pile up. So here's a radical idea. What if there are no such thing as positive or negative emotions? They're just emotions. What if there is no such thing as positive thoughts or negative thoughts? They're just thoughts, and we need to accept them as the data they are, not judge them, ridicule them, or try to change them. Just accept them as the data they are. The truth is, suppressing our thoughts means we can't accurately assess our experiences. If we can't learn from the lows, we can't enjoy the highs either. 
We are human beings, and the goal is to experience a wide range of emotions. I am beyond grateful that I learned this lesson early on in my dad's Parkinson's diagnosis. Our relationship grew after his diagnosis because I could really show up for all of the good and the bad. I wasn't forcing myself to think positive, and so I didn't have to force him to either. When he would come to me sharing his pain, frustrations, and anger, I could just listen and be present. We could just be there together in the hard, exhausting situation that was his illness. Letting go of positive thinking allowed me to be fully present with my dad. And now, years after his death, I still take comfort in those heartfelt conversations that we had. And in our work together, my client Mindy and I spent a lot of time doing what I call embracing the and. When Mindy would say, I get sad on Father's Day, but then I tell myself, you survived, be happy. I suggested she say to herself, Father's Day makes me sad because I never had a dad that would play with me and support me, and I'm happy I made it out as quickly as I did. Over time, Mindy learned her negative emotions weren't that scary. They were just emotions. As she embraced the and, and practiced other ways of honoring herself, her anxiety began to decrease. She began to give herself kindness around all the anger, fear, and sadness that came up, and accept that they were just as much a part of her as the positive stuff. In reality, these so-called negative emotions are warning lights. They alert us to the potential issues or danger. They grab our attention so we can focus on what we need to change or solve. So in addition to embracing the and, what can you do? Today, I'm going to share three ways to talk to yourself when you feel those unpleasant thoughts and emotions. The first approach is the approach that I share in my book, The Happier Approach. So let's take the example of you having the argument with your spouse. Rather than hopping in the car and immediately trying to change your thoughts to the positive, you practice the happier approach. Ask. A, acknowledge what you're feeling frustrated, annoyed, sad, disappointed, unworthy, listing off all the feelings that you are feeling in that moment. Then you can slow down and get into your body, some type of full body movement, stretching for the sky, touching your toes or wiggling your whole body. And finally, you can kindly pull back to see the big picture. This is where you can determine what your spouse is doing to annoy you, why it is annoying you, and what you need to ask for moving forward. So later that night, when you come home and you see your spouse, you will have honored and accepted what you are feeling, and you will be ready to listen, share, and solve the issue at hand. The second approach is brought to you by Gabrielle Odingen. She is a lead researcher and psychology professor at NYU. She has done a lot of research in the field of positive thinking, and through her studies, she has proven that positive thinking does not work in the long term. She says, positive thinking can make us feel better in the short term, but over the long term, it saps our motivation, preventing us from achieving our wishes and goals and leaving us feeling frustrated, stymied, and stuck. She goes on to say, the more that people think positive and imagine themselves achieving their goals, the less they actually achieve. The system that she has discovered is called WHOOP, and it stands for Wish, Outcome, Obstacle, and Plan. So again, taking the example of your spouse and your argument, the first step is, what is your wish? What is your most important wish or concern? 
I wish to stop keeping score and fighting over who does what, to just appreciate each other for what we bring to the table. The next question, what is the best outcome? If your wish is fulfilled, where would that leave you? What would be the best, most positive outcome? The outcome you would want is to fight far less, to have more joy day to day, because we could be able to talk through when we're feeling underappreciated without being so defensive. What is your main inner obstacle? What is within you that holds you back from fulfilling your wish? It might be an emotion, an irrational belief, or a bad habit. What is it really? The fear that he will take advantage of me, that I will always be doing more because I'm such an overachiever and he is okay with what is. And then finally, make a plan. What can you do to overcome your obstacle? Identify one action you can take or one thought you can think to overcome your obstacle. The plan, to be open and honest with yourself, to own when you are feeling underappreciated, and ask, am I appreciating myself? Then to ask, is this, whatever you're going to do, that important? And where can I ask for help? Gabrielle details these findings and her approach in her book, Rethinking Positive Thinking. You can also check out her website at whoopmylife.org. We will have the links to all of these in the show notes. So head over there to find out more information. And the third approach is by the psychologist Peter M. Golwitzer and his colleagues at the New York University. And they have used a strategy called implementation intentions, in which people form plans about future actions using if-then statements. If I start to feel angry at my spouse about feeling underappreciated, then I will ask myself, am I appreciating myself? Or if I am appreciating myself and still feel anger, then I will be honest with my husband and ask for help rather than pouting. So those three examples, ask, whoop, and the if-then statements are what you can do instead of just defaulting to positive thinking. So finally, I want to share one of my favorite books on this subject written by Oliver Berkman, and it is called The Antidote happiness for people who can't stand positive thinking. You can see why I called to me. (laughs) Berkman writes in The Guardian, research points to an alternative approach to happiness, a negative path to happiness that entails taking a radically different stance toward those things most of us spend our lives trying hard to avoid. This involves learning to enjoy uncertainty, embracing insecurity, and becoming familiar with failure. In order to be truly happy, it turns out we might actually need to be willing to experience more negative emotions, or at the very least, to stop running quite so hard from them. This week, I challenge you to experience all your thoughts and emotions. They are not something to be controlled or changed. They are simply information. It's no secret that I have a bone to pick with the self-help industry. The solution it sells leaves women living with hidden anxiety, women like you with more stuff to be anxious about, or worse, it turns you off from getting help completely. At this point, I've made my case that positive thinking doesn't always create positive results. In fact, for women like you dealing with hidden high-functioning anxiety, positive thinking can be really dangerous. 
I work one-on-one with women like you to deconstruct why anxiety creeps up on you and give you something to do about it. Here's how it works. First, we meet for an extended 90-minute session to uncover your stories and habits. You know, the ones that keep you stuck. Then, you continue to work with me on demand through an app that lets you leave a message for me anytime you start to feel anxious or whenever you feel a monger attack. I'll get back to you with action steps for moving through the discomfort and finding peace. Plus, you'll continue to meet with me for monthly sessions too. Working with me this way is incredibly efficient and effective way to deal with your anxiety in the moment without waiting for your next appointment. I have been blown away by the results of this methodology of working with my clients, and they have nipped their high-functioning anxiety and learned completely new ways of dealing with it. Ready to get started? Email me, nancyjane at live-happier.com, and we'll set up a free 30-minute consultation to see if this process is a good fit for you. Again, please reach out at nancyjane at live-happier.com. Like the show? I would love for you to subscribe on your favorite podcast player, and then head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review. Do you know someone who struggles with high-functioning anxiety? Tell them to listen as well. I am so excited to share with you the happier approach. To find out more, visit live-happier.com.